Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, from broadband access to workforce readiness, there's a lots of challenges facing Georgia schools from kindergarten to higher ed. Danny Rickman from the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education joins me to discuss what her group thinks lawmakers can do about those challenges. Plus, the Atlanta Regional Commission wants to hear from you, the community, regarding transit and mobility initiatives. We'll tell you why. These are conversations that matter. But first, this jury selection began earlier today in the federal hate crimes trial for the three men convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. Now, the judge ordered the first 50 potential jurors to report to the courthouse in Brunswick in the early morning. The reason? This is where the jurors are questioned in order to to determine if they can serve as fair and unbiased. Nearly 1,000 folks across 43 Georgia counties received jury duty notices for this. Because of intense pre-trial publicity, the judge plans to seat a jury of 12 plus four alternate jurors. Greg and Travis McMichael and their neighbor, William William Bryan, chased them on our brain pickup trucks as he ran through their neighborhood. Federal prosecutors say the three white men targeted Arbery because he was black. Last week, the McMichaels had reached a plea deal with prosecutors, but the deal was opposed by the Arbery family, and the judge did not approve, citing sentencing guidelines. Thus, the McMichaels withdrew their guilty pleas. In other news, for many black residents in Metro Atlanta, access to reliable transportation remains a barrier to employment. For some, it takes hours just to get across town on a bus. And for many outside the perimeter, public transportation is non-existence. As we hear from Emil Moffitt, this disparity is leading to calls for more transit equity. John Taylor remembers standing on a street corner two decades ago, not far from the West End MARTA station, demonstrating for more public transit options, or as he calls it, a good fair ride. Good God, can we please make sure that 20 years from now we're talking about how we have a good fair ride. Thank you. Taylor is with the nonprofit group Black Male Initiative. He was among dozens who rallied recently to mark Transit Equity Day, observed each year on the birthday of civil rights pioneer Rosa Parks. Taylor and many others are calling for upgrades to MARTA inside the perimeter and the expansion of public transportation beyond it. They want residents of Clayton, South DeKalb, Gwinnett and Cobb to have an efficient way to commute to the city for work. Rita Scott, who chairs MARTA's board of directors, says the agency continues exploring ways to make that happen. Public transit is the key to every community thriving. So that's what we plan to do long term, is to make sure that everyone that needs access to public transit has it. Scott and others are hopeful that newly available federal dollars will help MARTA continue to expand. Atlanta's new city council president, Doug Shipman, says that money can help inside the city too, including the introduction of a fleet of electric buses. And so I think those infrastructure dollars will allow us to make some of those capital investments that really can change the way that transit works in Atlanta. Georgia Congressman Hank Johnson, meanwhile, is pressing state and federal transportation leaders to rethink plans to expand the 285 I-20 interchange east of Atlanta. He favors extending heavy rail service to the area instead. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. A state lawmaker is proposing changing Georgia's hands-free law so that you can grab your phone while you're at a red light or a stop sign. Raul Bali reports on the passionate debate about changing the rules on distracted driving. Republican State Senator Frank Ginn explained his bill to fellow lawmakers and public safety advocates during a recent legislative hearing. I don't want to make criminals out of our Georgia citizens. And what we're doing right now is, is because... These people are hiding it, said they're not focused on what's around them, and it's dangerous. And for me, this is a way that I think we can 
prove our traffic flow, and we can still enforce the law. Some speakers in the hearing argued that it could lead to more people looking at their phones while driving. Republican State Senator Randy Robertson is a former sheriff's deputy in Columbus and calls the proposal dangerous. Those of us in public safety, we do have to consider the driving habits of the public, the good ones and the bad ones. So I think what we always have to do when we talk about public safety is err on the side of caution and look at the worst case scenario. Others pointed out that drivers could use voice-driven technology like Siri and Google Assistant. Senate Bill 356 does have a challenging path in the legislature because of the opposition from public safety advocates. Raul Bally, WABE News. Finally, former Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is joining CNN as a political commentator. Bottoms made the announcement via Twitter today. Now she's been a frequent guest on the news network in recent years discussing the 2020 election and the city's response to the pandemic. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. This year, as you know, Georgia lawmakers are paying a lot of attention to what's happening in public schools across the state, from what's being taught to how much input parents should have to which students can participate in school sports. But education advocates have other issues they think deserve attention, like helping students catch up from pandemic learning loss, developing a new system of school accountability. Now, those are just some of the issues highlighted by the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education in their annual Top 10 Issues to Watch report. And it recently released the 2022 edition that offers targeted recommendations to solve the education gaps in schools throughout Georgia. Now, Dana Rickman is present and she joins me now for more. Dana, welcome back to the program. Thanks for taking the time. Hello, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Let's just, before we get into our conversation, the last two years, of course, now we're two full years into this pandemic. And just through your lens, the overall state concerns that you have about uh, how we're educating students in this time, because we're all still dealing with the pandemic. Yes. Hard to believe, but yes, we're now almost two years in and we are still dealing with this. And, you know, for the most part, it's just been like one unprecedented difficulty after the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are there are some silver linings if you really look for them. Um, and you know, under the, the guise of, you know, don't waste a good opportunity uh, to, to do things different. And so, you know, generally it has been a real struggle for both for families, for educators, for students, like it, there's just a lot of, of struggle still happening and continuing so. But if you peel that away and really try to look for some silver linings or some lessons learned to make things overall better, I think over the past two years, we've generally been able to draw attention to you know, issues that have really plagued our educational system for years and have always been there, but you know, haven't really been noticed or talked about. And one of the big ones, uh, I think, is the role that schools play within their communities. Like schools are no longer just a place of learning. They Mm -hmm. certainly are that, right? But what we've put on the schools now, they're really, you know, community centers and nexus points for communities where they provide food, mental health and physical support, wraparound services. And, you know, schools and educators have been playing this role for a really long time without general recognition or resources, frankly, to do so. Uh, But now there are some real serious conversations about how to resource schools, how to partner and how to be more than just, you know, educating students. 
that's one big one. And for those who might have been surprised, you're right about the wraparound services that so many public school districts have been providing for students and their households. And you think about and and because to be fair, we've highlighted a lot of them, profiled a lot of them here on Closer Look, where it was APS or Cobb County or Gwinnett. Food insecurity, a big, big major issue. Housing yes. stability, because as you know, yes. as as if a student's household has to move because of, of, of housing issues, then that also impacts that student's learning. Absolutely. So do you think that, so you're saying that the pandemic has highlighted what some districts have been doing for a long time with little funding or or no funding or have to rely on public partnerships, public-private partnerships to provide these services? Yeah, I think in a way that has brought it to more the I mean, the, the general public's awareness and one of the one of the and I know we're going to talk about legislative session in a little while, but one of the huge things that I'm excited about that's coming out of leg- the legislative session is a bill that's uh, sponsored by Speaker Walston, but it has to do with reforms from the Behavioral Health Reform mm-hmm. Commission. They've been you know, looking at this Behavioral Health Commission for a couple of years now, but really digging into mental health services across the board. But what we're interested in particularly is around schools and families and school children and bringing forth the, the struggle that, that families and children have around mental health and everybody kind of accepting, yeah, this is a real thing that we really need to address. And it's no longer something that happened to others or mm-hmm. them or, or, you know, it's it's much easier to talk about now it's in the forefront and a lot of the issues that have been plaguing our, our school system and our students are now people are talking about them and really having serious discussions about how to resource some of the solutions which we hadn't seen uh, outside of pockets of you know advocates and mm-hmm. folks on so that that's a big silver lining if we can actually start moving the needle on some of these things and I want to give you an opportunity for our listeners who may not be familiar with your organization I gave a very brief definition about the Georgia <laughs> Partnership for excellence excellence in education for folks say well why are you on the closer look with Rose Scott show uh, <laughs> <laughs> Talk about your history and mission. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. Actually, Rose, I don't know if you realize this, but we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. Mm-hmm. We were founded back in 1992, and we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan sort of research think tank around education policy. And we do a lot of work on state level education policy, but also local and regional um, community engagement kind of work. And we were founded you know, back in 1992 uh, for a partnership from the Georgia Chamber of Commerce and the Georgia Economic Developers Association. And we were founded to be that voice that really connects education policy and workforce development policy. So that as students come out of Georgia's public education system, they have the skills and knowledge necessary to participate in our workforce and our growing economy. And when you all issue your top 10 issues to watch, I imagine it's it's, it's your top 10. I'm sure the list is a lot longer than that. Uh, How did you all assemble this year's top 10? Well, we assembled in a similar way that we do, uh, you know, most years. Our our list of critical issues, they're really designed to provide, again, research-based, nonpartisan, you know, analysis of of topics that we undoubtedly think are going to impact schools and students in the coming year. But we, it's not just, you know, me and my staff huddled together in a room. Mm -hmm. We have a really broad, um, I guess, coalition or, or, or policy committee from, you know, other state advocates like ourselves to elected officials, to people on the ground, people in the districts, and just talking to them about what they're seeing, you know, what is, is there new research coming out? Are there new programs? And getting a really broad perspective of what people are seeing are happening and what they think are going to be the big issues. And then we always try to save one or two issues within the 10 for things that we think are incredibly important that nobody's really talking about and trying to raise the spotlight on on things like that. And so it's a really broad-based coalition of voices that come together that we try to distill. And you're right, it is tough to get down to 10. Um, But here we are. Here we are. Well, let's talk about the number one issue in the top 10, which it should not be lost on people, but you never know, uh, equity. Shifting mindset and strategy. Let's dissect that further for our listeners. Yeah, uh, this year, 
each of our 10 issues really focuses on what we're calling an equity mindset and how that can contribute to sort of reimagining policies and practices to accelerate learning and expand access to you know, opportunities for all, all Georgians. And in the simplest terms, an equity mindset is the recognition that students succeed when they receive the resources and tools that address any academic and non-academic learning barriers that they may have. And so essentially providing the resources and opportunities to each individual student as they need them. And it looks different for different students depending on what they need. Uh, but, the, but the first issue in particular is so important to us because it really lays the framework and the in the grounding for every other issue on top of it. And when we talk about equity, you know, it, we believe that equity provides a space for individuals to have conversations about how the past frames the present. I don't think we as individuals or as a state or even as a nation can move forward without reckoning with the past, especially any discriminatory social or economic policies that have disadvantaged certain groups and sometimes continue to today. But what's also important to recognize is that race and ethnicity is the most often discussed dimension of equity, mm -hmm. but clearly not the only dimension of equity, right? Sure. And so we need to recognize there are other factors that affect opportunity around equity, like gender, income, wealth, and income and wealth are two very different things that we have to recognize. Age, geography, you know, rural, urban, uh, parental education, and the list goes on. And so we think for education and workforce strategies, you need to consider all of these things, race, income, and these other socioeconomic dimensions uh, to really move the needle on these things. So if we're talking about then this, this shifting of the mindset and strategy, that it, does that apply? Mm -hmm. We know that it, you're probably saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, you want this applies to the environment of, of education, but also policymakers and those that have the uh, the power, the authority, or, or you know the desire, if they want or will, to implement to implement policy changes. That this is is this where you begin with shifting mindset and strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And in the in the top ten, in the first issue, we again we try to be very clear because these are words that can go sideways on you quickly, right? And people interpret these things differently. And so yes. we wanted to be very clear about what we were talking about from the Georgia partnership. And we think um, we frame it sort of in an equity mindset, frames it in two ways. One, it's a mindset that state policymakers, advocates, you know, anybody uh, use to identify barriers to expanding access to education and workforce opportunity. So mm -hmm. what are the different barriers? And two, as an element of state policy and local practice. And, you know, one, a great example of that on how to do that, and it links into you, um, to your opening you were talking, is the news was talking about the different transportation needs mm -hmm. of you know, inside metro and outside metro. School transportation policy has been a huge issue in how we fund school transportation policy. And so if you're looking at an equity mindset, first you would look at what are the barriers. And barriers around transportation look very different for rural schools, mm -hmm. for suburban schools, and even for urban schools. Different barriers, different um, things that you have to address. And then as an element of state policy, that second part, how does state policy have to be different when applied to addressing transportation of rural schools versus transportation of urban schools, right? So you have different policy tools depending on the barriers that you're addressing. And so it's those two things that work together um, as you pass legislation or even, you know, different programmatic things that you're doing is to take these things into account. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dana Rickman, the president of the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. And we are talking about the organization's top 10 issues to watch for 2022. I want to shift for a moment here and I'm bouncing around a little bit, but issue okay. number three, which I, you're right. You love that issue. Number three, non-academic, <laughs> non-academic barriers, the school's role. And according to the report, the goal is to address non-academic barriers to learning. School leaders must consider addressing what you all view as the five social determinants of health affect student well-being. We know what that is. And we you talked a little bit about them. And the first one on that is neighborhood. And and look, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, and, and from kindergarten to fifth grade, went to my neighborhood high school, my neighborhood school. It was great. The mm -hmm. teachers lived in the community. It was all fine. Then they introduced they introduced busing and they closed <laughs> out of the schools on the 
on the north side of St. Louis and bust us to the south side of St. Louis where they put all the magnet programs. So, yeah. <laughs> so changing that school model in my community really impacted a lot of folks because everyone didn't qualify to go to the magnet school. So you mentioned neighborhood and the physical environment where youth live and learn. So important. You know, the, the, we're, students are only in school, and let's take the pandemic out of it for, for a second. Traditionally, you're in school for only about a third of your you know daily life, right? Most of your time and most of your influences and things that are actually going to affect your learning happen outside the classroom building. But schools are still held responsible for all the learning and everything else. And so they're held responsible for addressing all the things that happen outside the school. So, and it's going to be different depending on your neighborhood. If Mm -hmm. there's a lot of after-school programs, a lot of affluent families, or if there's gang problems, if there's hunger, you know, all of these things affect the ability of students to learn. And so now schools have been charged with really making up for that or leveraging that depending on what's going on in the student's uh, life. And so there's a couple different ways that um, schools have done this. And we talked earlier about schools really are for a lot of families and a lot of students, the nexus of a community mm-hmm. In a real strong school. They almost operate as like a community center where they offer, you know, late programs for uh, parents trying to get their GED late meaning out of school time mm-hmm. uh, hours. And so we're looking, this issue really looks at different ways that schools can provide wraparound services, which are programs outside of the normal eight to two, whenever school's in, Mm -hmm. uh, as either a deliverer themselves of of a program or more likely a partner with other community services and community organization or a referrer to refer students out, especially for like, you know, high need mental health supports or, you know, as you mentioned, housing insecurity, how can they connect students and their families to safe and stable housing, all of those issues come up and present themselves uh, at the school door. And so how can um, communities really respond and leverage the strength of a school, but also resource it and connect them properly. So it's not just another thing these poor teachers are doing, you know, late at night or on the weekends in their precious time trying to figure out how to mm-hmm. you know, make sure their students are well cared for. Well, let's move to the teachers and educators. This is issue eight, revamping the teaching profession. You say a new moonshot. And in issue nine, we'll get into that. But revamping the teaching profession. Now, the last two decades, remember that that whole that whole narrative around I'm an education reformer. Everybody was Mm -hmm. an education reformer. And then. They all just kind of faded away. (laughs) And I'll admit I am guilty of that. I claim to be an education reformer. And, you know, honestly, I probably still do. But I think what has happened, and we chose that title specifically, A New Moonshot, because we remember those of us or people have been told, you know, it happened in the 60s if we weren't around then, that, you know, the president set a goal that we were going to make it to the moon within the next, next decade. But there was no idea of how we were going to do it. Like we didn't have the technology. We didn't know how this was going to happen, but it was felt to be such, it was so important to America at the time that we make it to the moon. Like it was critically important that that Mm -hmm. happened. And so we made that declaration. And I think we are at a similar, we were frankly past a similar point in time with our teaching profession. Like we don't know exactly how we're going to do this, but we have got to fundamentally change how teachers are recruited, how they're retained. That includes, of course, their compensation, but it's a lot more than that. It's including teachers as the professionals that they are. What's not working? And I don't want to call out any specific initiative because they're because yeah. depending on whom you ask, you're going to get a different yeah answer. But there have been some some models that they have used to enlist folks for you know coming into education and other folks say, well, it's not fair. I spent all these years in college and I, you know, got my master's and I got all this net. And then y'all come with this other initiative where folks just, you know, you know, where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that's a lot of it. I think there are certainly examples where this doesn't happen, but I think on the whole, uh, the profession feels like things are being done to them and, and new approaches, new 
directives, new, you're going to teach it this way now, or you can't do this. And frankly, the, the teachers, they are, they are the professionals in the classroom. They know best about how students learn, what they need, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And I think there's a lot of decisions that are made around teaching that nobody consults with the teachers mm-hmm. on the best way to do it. And they're just told, oh, here are your new whatever. Here are your new benchmarks. Here's your new way. And so they are not included generally in broader discussions about teaching. Uh, And a lot is done to them. And so I think they are doing heroes work day in, day out. Um, They they are not compensated on the scale at the same scale as other people in professions that require similar levels of expertise and training. but I think they, they need to be, there has to be a lot more respect for the profession in the general society. I think, and I think that is where we need to go. Well, and like I said, let's yeah. talk about that. You said there, mm-hmm. you think there needs to be a lot more respect in general for the profession. Mm-hmm. I, I want to take that. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. Well, you know, I think so. We look at other countries uh, that are very high performing, and it's not really fair to compare U.S. to other countries because there's so many differences. But if you look at the teaching core and how they think about the teaching profession in their um, society, becoming a teacher is right up there with what we would think of in America as like a neuroscientist or an astronaut, like it is the dream job, like the best and the brightest are recruited, they're maintained, they're, you know, they're really, it's considered a top tier, very professional, you know, profession. Whereas I don't think teaching has, it should, but I don't think it does have that same reputation in um, sort of American culture. Uh, When parents think about their little kids, you know, what's the biggest dream you have for them? Teaching is usually pretty far down the list. Well, what, what, where do you think that this breakdown has been? Has it been the last few decades? I want to admit, when I was little, I loved all my teachers, even the ones that yeah. even the ones that kicked me out of kindergarten. But I loved all of them, and they were great. Um, you know, I did too. I loved my teachers, and you know, my my mother was a teacher, and there there's so many great teachers. But I think a lot of it has to do with the pay band. Um, A Mm -hmm. lot of it has to do with, I think, the incorrect assumption, oh, teachers only work till 2.30 in the afternoon and they get the summers off. Uh, That's not true. I hope folks don't believe that because that is so not true. But I I hear that a lot. It's like, oh, you want to become a teacher because you want the summers off. Uh, Not true. That's not true. Uh, But so I think there's just a lot of misperceptions. And then I think, especially over the past decade or so, uh, teachers have really internally as the profession really felt, for lack of a better phrase, kind of dumped on uh, with the, you know, the accountability and everything else that goes with it and not really feeling free to innovate and really tend to their students the way that they want to. We could do a whole nother segment on on our educators and our teachers, and we probably should dedicate more than just a show to them. And I think I will. Um, Before we let you go, I know you all are paying close attention to all this legislation that could impact students and teachers this year. What is concerning for you? You talked about what you were, you you know, you're glad that Speaker Rostin with his Mm -hmm. approach to to mental health and, and all the legislation around that. But what concerns do you have as it relates to those bills that are related to education? Well, you know, there's there's the obvious elephant in the room uh, where we mentioned, I don't know if we mentioned already, but the, you know, the the bills around critical race theory and, and things like that, that, that we have some concerns around that just from a, um, you know, for, from a practical standpoint, whenever you start talking about banning or um, discussions or preventing certain discussions, I think that takes you down sort of a, a slippery slope and really banning particular discussions really prevents, I think, the conversations that we should be having that can help sort of produce ethical citizens and in dialogue to get us past some of these contentious points that that we are on. Um, And so those are some that are are concerning to us. But there are uh, others that I think are are really exciting, especially in the the workforce development side, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at different alternatives or, or, you know, increasing pathways around uh, work-based learning opportunities for Georgians. Um, And also there's one, House Bill 1037, requiring the Commissioner of Labor to adopt a statewide peer 
workforce navigator pilot program to target underserved populations through reemployment services or education training um, opportunities. I think one thing that Georgia does really, really well, we have actually a lot of different pathways to different kind of exciting careers that aren't the traditional, you know, go to college for four years. But there's so many of them, and it's very confusing that it's kind of hard to navigate and figure out what a student needs to do. Mm-hmm. So having like this peer navigator program, I think would show a lot of promise. And then I'm, I'm particularly excited. There's a, there's another bill, uh, House Bill 932, that's really looking at in-state tuition for certain non-citizens, uh, you know, dreamers in particular. We, we have such a, a workforce shortage and that's such a vibrant talent pool uh, to help get that population into degreed programs and completing degree programs would really um, help us on the economic development side. So those are some of the things that we're watching. And we should we should note you all are nonpartisan, correct? That's correct. Although I imagine some people yeah. want to counter that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we say non nonpartisan, uh, meaning that you know we don't come at these with any kind of ideological agenda. We just look at the research and the facts and let it sort of guide. So that doesn't mean that we're not necessarily not political, but we're certainly not ideologically driven. Because at the end of the day, you just want to make sure all kids have a, a equal, equitable access to a fine education. Well stated. Thank you. It shouldn't be that hard. I can say that. <laughs> Dana Rickman is the president of the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. We've been talking about the organization's top 10 issues to watch report for 2022. We'll have a link to it on our website. Dana, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, love all my teachers, all my educators. They're wonderful. And I think that we should just take this moment to recognize them. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Have a good day. All right. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The Atlanta Regional Commission is looking for public input on changes to Metro Atlanta's Transportation Improvement Program, or TIP. That's how the Intergovernmental Agency describes how to direct federal, state, and local dollars to different transportation projects in the region. Now, the, those changes include directing $10.7 million to, project, to projects aimed at making communities more walkable, through the ARC's Livable Centers Initiative. We've talked about that before. Also on the table are 17 projects throughout the region, from building multi-use paths in Cobb County to making Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta more pedestrian-friendly. That I got to see. We shall see what happens. Sam Shimbaka is Managing Director of the Community Development Group at the ARC and joins me now with more. Sam, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great to be here, Rose. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Let's begin here because a few years ago when we kicked off our Gridlocked What's Moving Atlanta award-winning series, which we didn't know be award-winning, but it was, we asked folks about their transit habits, desires, and concerns. I would like for Marta to go more places. I think a lot of people are now more conscious of public transportation than ever before, and especially with how the traffic has become. So I would like to somehow get public transportation more accessible for more people in in more places. That's what I would like to see. I wish we had an answer for all the traffic, but I would like to see Martyr extend a little more outward. I would love to have some of the transportation buses kind of situated where we can get on the bus and they take us to work maybe. I would love to see the city's infrastructure reflect the tendencies of the universe to become more focused on other modes of transportation. So more bike lanes. I think curbing speeding is really important to me. I think we need to lower the speed limit in this city on all city roads. Yeah, I think design more than anything else. 
think I'd like to see Georgia's transit landscape change a lot first for like the traffic flow and the way like the lanes are marked just so that it just kind of seems like it's always a mess and drivers are like shifting into each other's lanes, cutting people off, cutting off pedestrians. So I think more clarity in that. And also, yes, designated bike lanes. I'd love to see that. And just clear road markings and more options. I would like to see a fundamental shift in how we approach transit. I think that the state of Georgia in particular uh, needs to put a hard stop on spending for new fossil fuel infrastructure. That that time has passed and it's time we explored other options. Now Sam, that was from a few years ago. Those issues, not lost on you, I'm sure. Not at all. Not at all. And it, Rose, what I the program that you just mentioned, the Livable Centers Initiative, right? Mm-hmm. If I may, sure. it gets to the heart of some of that. Mm-hmm. And for, for some of your listeners who are not aware, right, right after the Olympics, we were really in a crisis when it came to air quality. So one of the functions that the Atlanta Regional Commission does is creating a long-range transportation plan. And at that point, the plan that we created, which had a heavy emphasis on roadway infrastructure mm-hmm. was violating the Clean Air Act. And we needed to figure out a way to combat that uh, and get out of sprawl and essentially improve our air quality. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, and and I like to say, like, in the midst of every crisis lies a great opportunity. I think Einstein said that. I'm borrowing it. But what we did in 1999 in response to that is exactly some of those comments that I'm hearing from your viewers. Our board at that point created the Livable Centers Initiative. Mm-hmm. And the focus, again, of that is how do we improve the air quality of our region by getting folks to not get into single occupancy vehicles? Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, you're never going to build your way out of traffic congestion with more roadway infrastructure. Let me ask you, Sam, because it's much like with the segment we had before when we talked about improving education and uh, the guest talked about mindset, shifting mindset. And I've asked that question too. Is it also about, does this begin with changing people or getting people to understand a different mindset when it comes to these transportation and mobility initiatives? Because for a lot of folks, they want to jump in their car. They say, I, MARTA is too slow or there's not enough other, you know, mobile alternative swarm. So does it begin then with shifting the mindset here? Absolutely. And that is very core to the program, right? Because what the program does over the course of a, a planning process, as we call, is work with the community to help understand the benefits of what it takes to be more walkable, what it takes to be more bikeable, and to have those alternative modes of transportation. And to your point, that is absolutely about a mindset, right? And and you can see this in the Atlanta metro over time. I think there is a greater desire for more transit, more mm-hmm. bikeability and walkability. And to tell you the truth, the as we're planning for the region of the future, I think those are as much quality of life issues as they are your commuting uh, issues. So having a walkable, bikeable uh, center, downtown transit node is going to be key for not just your commute and improving quality of life, but those are going to be attractors for talent, uh, Mm -hmm. for businesses, and ultimately for the economic prosperity of the region. But throughout all of that, what you just said, and then comes again, much like when we talk about education, is this E-word equity in all of this, depending on where you live, what neighborhood you live in, you know, transportation and other mobility initiatives, equity is, is there is a huge gap there. You know that. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll be the first to say, if you were to look through the projects list, there is obviously an, an issue in terms of how many projects we have on the north side versus the south side. And Mm -hmm. that gets to the heart of your comment on the equity. And 
at the Atlanta Regional Commission, the one thing we are doing on an ongoing basis is working with communities throughout the region to help them put in applications and help them get projects that can be funded. Now, one of the ways in which I will tell you that we have been doing this, and, and the solutions are different. Mm -hmm. What works on the north side doesn't work on the south side. And one of the ways that we worked with a coalition of communities on the south side to build their capacity to then apply and seek this kind of funding, you may have heard of the Aerotropolis Alliance, mm -hmm. which again, what, what which came out of one of our regional plans not too long ago, where we said there is an equity issue. There is a inability of communities on the south side to be able to access the resources the same way that their neighbors on the north side are. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the Aerotropolis Alliance was born and what it has enabled in the last few years, uh, uh, this is the last thing I'll say, Rose, is that they have been able to get funding and resources from the, from the ARC to do livable centers initiative off uh, grant amounts, which frankly, in the past would not have been possible. Hmm. So, so that those are some ways in which, but the work remains to your point. Sure. And so with this update of the, uh, of the transportation improvement program, you all have this listed by County, correct? That is correct. What did you? What do you think when people? Do you think people have a basic understanding when you all say, "Okay, we want your input," and even with the we call Vox, the Vox that we got from the community, and people talked about Marta, and people talked about scooters, mm -hmm. and, and people talked about okay, maybe some folks want you know light rail, but it's much bigger when you talk about transportation and mobility initiatives. It's almost a, a holistic approach that you all have. But as you mentioned too, not only will it be different in different neighborhoods, it's different in some counties because you look at Gwinnett County, which you know, mm -hmm. the Gwinnett and Cobb to be fair weren't exactly on board with MARTA when it first came on. And, you know, some counties that, you know, they've been with MARTA for a long time. I'm just using MARTA as an example here. So how did you all come up with these projects by county then? So, uh, and th that's a great question, Rose. And these projects that you see, these 17 projects that have been approved for funding, mm -hmm. they came out of a planning process that was helped. So, so to break it down a little bit, these LCI program is a two-part program. There's the LCI study program mm -hmm. where we work with the local government or, or a consultant works with the local government to come up with concepts of how a community center, a downtown wants to redevelop. And as part of that, they submit a list of projects that they think will move that work forward. Now, that process is completely driven by community engagement. So right from the beginning uh, of the planning process to the selection of the final list of preferred projects in the study, there's ongoing community engagement feedback before the plan, this LCI study gets adopted. Once that study is adopted, then there's a separate pot of money, which is what this project list is accessing. So the list of projects that you see here have gone through a very thorough community engagement and um, input process to even get to this list. Does that does that make sense? It makes sense. But I want to Sam, I want to get your thoughts on this, because sometimes, as you know, and for some communities, getting them to, getting their input, how you all present the, the information or present the form for the for them to give their input can be challenging. You know, and, and again, I don't want to pick on Marta, but I remember there was an issue with Marta and, you know, they were having these these town hall forms or whatever. But it was hard for people even to get to them because That's even right. the Marta bus was like six miles away. And I'm, I'm exaggerating six miles, but it was a long walk. So that's right. What? How much? <laughs> and, it, and guess it would make it simple in terms of getting the folks to put their input. Did you all consider making sure that they had access to properly give their input. That makes sense? Yes, it makes sense. So, and, and this is, so for this, obviously we have a public comment, um, you know, sort of protocol that we follow to get, make sure that we get enough public input. Now with the pandemic, I will agree that in this cycle, probably not the amount of extensive public engagement that we could have done 
was done to be able to get to this list. But going back again, Rose, to the fact that this list, even getting to this list that got submitted, mm-hmm. we do each of those studies, each of those counties, each of those cities that submitted those projects, those lists uh, were generated by a lot of public input, which included public meetings, online, social media, surveys, you name the public input technique or tool going from the high tech to the on the ground, they were deployed. And that is very much core to the LCI program is Mm -hmm. that whatever comes out of these studies and is submitted for projects needs to have the buy-in and the input of the community right from the beginning. And that's why one, one last thing, if I'll say is when we were doing these studies initially, we used to have a certain budget. You know, we used to spend about a million dollars a year to give to communities to uh, do these studies. Now we realize to really get input from the community, get into the community and be able to hear all the voices, especially the underrepresented Mm -hmm. folks, be it small businesses, be it minorities, we needed to also put in more funds to allow the consultants to do the work over more time and put more resources to it. So Mm -hmm. we actually, three years ago, we doubled the study, the grant amount to $2 million a year. And now if you were to go and if, if your listeners were, were to go and look at, for example, the Gwinnett BRT study that mm-hmm. we just completed, which happens to be the largest study that we have done, it's about an $800,000 grant. The public engagement element of that was extremely comprehensive and significant. Did you also make sure that it was available in multi-languages when I think of Gwinnett Absolutely. County? Absolutely. Okay. That's correct. We did. That's right. And that again, to, to the, and this exact, you're getting to the heart of what we're trying to do better also, Rose, because this was not always the case, right? And this is something that the evolution of the LCI program over the years has learned. We, uh, we need to fundamentally ask, ask ourselves when we say livable center, livable for whom Mm -hmm. and when we start when we started asking ourselves that question a couple of years ago what we realized was we need to be more inclusive in the process but also the end product now what i mean by that by the process i've already said is the community engagement how do we actually get to getting to folks doing different again getting to understanding the different ethnicities and trying to do engagement in a way that people will respond. But the second, the product, mm-hmm. we need to start tackling issues like housing affordability sure. as part of doing those centers. So you all have a virtual public hearing. It's going to take place Wednesday at 1030 a.m., correct? That is correct. And you are you all are confident that you've gotten this information out to the right communities through the right medium. Uh, do you all enlist houses of worship? Do you enlist great programs like closer look or you know i'm just saying How do y'all- <laughs> yeah, well I'm, I'm here to talk to you <laughs> so i'm going to check that box rose uh, but yes we we try again i i will i will i will say that i'm not uh fully aware of all the different tools that we're mm-hmm. using our transportation planning staff were working on this and the engagement staff are very aware of it but again we we try to get as many public comments as we can. How much money uh, total do you all have for these projects? And there are a lot of them. If folks, we're going to have a link on our website. Um, but so much- you mentioned you, you mentioned 10.7 million. Mm-hmm. That's right, exactly. And mm-hmm. so those are seven, 17 projects that we have. And so that, that again, if, if you go to our website, there should be a breakdown of all the different projects and how much money each of them is getting. And, um, it, it, and it, descri- it provides a little bit of a description of those projects as well. So in Cobb County, with the Silver Comet Trail Connector, all they wanted was to build multi-use paths along Old Lost Mountain and Jackson Way that will connect to the Silver Comet Trail to downtown? That's all they wanted? That's that's correct. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> that, that's, all. <laughs> that's all. That's all they want. Huh. Well, you, you, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the Peachtree Street shared space yeah. project as well, mm-hmm. which happens to be the biggest project. Uh, on this tip about 1.2 million yeah that's correct that um, is correct to convert and again, that- Peachtree street from ellis street to baker street in downtown atlanta into what you all say is a safe innovative shared space for use by pedestrians 
cyclists, transit riders, and micro mobility users and motorists. And I'm saying, wow, because that's, <laughs> I have folks on my staff who are bikers. I, you know, this is where I go into Auntie Rose mode because I'm so concerned about them. I think I ask them or tell them every day, correct, Daniel and Kevin, y'all be careful. I think I say that almost every day. So I am definitely aware of that. But when I think of Peachtree as a shared space for all them folks that we just mentioned, wow. Yes. But again, this is where ARC at our core, what we're trying to do is help cities that have come up with these visions and concepts to implement them. Right. If you if you recall, this project actually originally came out of the city design studio Mm -hmm. and everyone knows Peachtree Street. Let's be honest, that stretch of Peachtree Street downtown leaves a lot to be desired. And if you really want to create an active street, which at the end of the day serves the people as opposed to the automobile, you need to look at it fundamentally differently in terms of how you're designing it. And that's exactly what this is aiming to do, is to convert it so that the emphasis is not on the vehicle it's on the pedestrian experience it's mm-hmm. it's on the shops and the stores which are facing mm-hmm. peace street street and again that is something if you travel anywhere whenever we go out that's the experience we're looking for right whenever we're going to cities be it within the united states or internationally we want it to be walkable we want it to be attractive we want it to be safe and this is what we're trying to do uh, by funding this portion of the study for the Peachtree Street shared space. And again, we want to let folks know that we will have a link to this, but the virtual public hearing will take place this Wednesday at 1030 a.m. And if you want to speak at the public hearing, uh, you have to, I guess, email transportation at atlantaregional.org. Did I get that right? That's correct. All right. Um, when might we see some of these projects be completed? Which ones do you think could be completed this year? Or is that I know the shared space is going to take some time. <laughs> That's right, Rose. I love I love your optimism. Uh, you know, the these are transportation projects. A lot of these that you'll see on this list are preliminary engineering. So mm-hmm. these have to go through engineering. And by the time they get to construction, we're looking at a few more years. We're looking at least five to seven years. And mm-hmm. so that is, but again, those are things which take, you, you need to go through the public comment period through all of them and hopefully what we get in the end is going to be something that we're all going to be proud and happy with wow we didn't even get to scooters sam shibanga (laughs) is managing director of the community development group at the atlanta regional commission thank you so much for taking the time we're going to bring you all back lots to continue with this conversation i really appreciate it sam absolutely thanks rose glad to be here And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Daniel Brazel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. So does Daniel. I always leave Daniel out. But Daniel, you ride a bike too. I've just told all of Atlanta you ride a bike. You're okay with that? He says okay. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org, and especially about transportation and equity and education and equity, those conversations we had today. Let me know what you think. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, closer look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.